Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dorian Lenski. On this week's podcast, as the EU encounters trouble getting jabs into arms, are we witnessing the first and probably only Brexit dividend? Plus, UCL professor Dinan Pillay explains the difference between the COVID vaccines and how they operate. Also, how is today's Britain shaped by its imperial past? Satnam Sanghera joins us for a discussion about his new book, Empire Land. And what exactly is wokeness and should we shut up about it? All that and more on today's Bunker. Hello, welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. It's a busy week for The Bunker Dailies. At the weekend, we launched our surprise occasional series of interviews by Nick Cohen of The Observer. In his first edition, Nick talked to the author and historian James Hawes about James's book, The Shortest History of England, and what the future holds for England when the United Kingdom disunites. Spoiler, it's not bright, but it is a good listen. Subscribe on your favourite app so you don't miss any of our podcasts, and Patreon supporters, you'll get them a day early. Let's meet the panel for today's bunker. First up, hello to the chief executive of the New Economics Foundation, Miata Farnbilla. Uh, well, you were on BBC News the night of the Biden inauguration, which was a which was a rare happy day. How was that? Yeah, so it was great uh, being on, definitely because it felt like a watershed moment, particularly with the inauguration of Kamala Harris. Uh, it also felt really historic. So it was, it was great to commentate. I think the one thing that's quite difficult is that you want to give some sense of being kind of objective. And actually, all, all I felt was huge relief. Not very many good words to think or say about Trump uh, and just jubilation at the end of a horrific period was over. But uh, you have to be a bit more measured <laughs> than that. <laughs> Beyond the high-speed rollback of uh, various Trump executive orders, travel bans, leaving the Paris Climate Accord, the WHO, etc., um, what do you make of Biden's economic plans so far? So I think they're really encouraging. I think that the two things that stand out is the scale, uh, so 1.9 trillion package, which I think you know is massively needed. Uh, if you compare the sort of intervention that we've seen in the US compared to the types of interventions that we've seen in Europe, uh, they have definitely lagged behind. So he's playing catch up, uh, and I think the scale and ambition is incredibly encouraging. But also I think the emphasis, lots of support for families, uh, whether that's you know, massively increasing the amount of direct support that's provided with the $1,400 direct payment on top of the $600. Uh, But things like rent assistance, uh, food vouchers, so generally trying to get help to people that need it. And then a big theme around rebalancing the, the priorities for the economy towards workers away from the wealthy corporates. Uh, And, you know, if you think about the big themes that ran through uh, the Trump administration, this is definitely a break from the past. And the shift in minimum wage is a kind of a a first step. So I think it's encouraging, hopefully a down payment on the sorts of things that we'll be seeing throughout the Biden administration. Also on today's panel, we have former diplomat Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hello. Um, Pro-Navalny protests have broken out all over Russia. There's a remarkable photo of, uh, of one in the freezing cold and sort of icy fog of Siberia. The EU is discussing potential further sanctions against Putin's regime. What's fueling this unrest? It can't be just that everybody loves Navalny. It isn't, although I think we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which the failed attempt to kill him and his decision to come back and then the immediate arrest of him uh, I think that's had a big impact. But yeah, there's there's a much more important underlying point, which is that Navalny 
has been the most effective campaigner against corruption by Putin and his cronies. And he's shone a real light on that. And he's been doing it for years. And and the corruption is is ongoing. And it's it however much Russians like Putin's sort of making their country feel strong and powerful on the international stage, they don't like the corruption. And so, you know, there's a lot of frustration there. And the protests are unfortunately unlikely to bring uh, Putin down um, in the coming days. But could they weaken his control in the long term? Is is this something that is is, is going to affect his leadership? Well, I I think it it gives focus to the fact that he is not the the undisputed sort of sole power in the land, which is of course what he wants to be, and arguably he was that a couple of years ago. Putin had quite a difficult 2020, partly because of the response to the uh, coronavirus in Russia was 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 not that good, and there was a lot of attempts to sort of hush up what was really going on, and. He made himself ruler for life right at the beginning. It's hard to believe 2020 is such a weird year. But he sort of tried to set up the circumstances for him to continue to rule Russia for as long as he's alive. And I think that may actually have made people start to think, well, actually, we need something else, don't we? we? We can't always have Putin. There has to be a succession. And then you start asking yourself, well, do I like the people around Putin? And and I think a lot of Russians don't. This week, we're delighted to be joined by Satnam Sangera, Times journalist and author of the new book, Empire Land, How Modern Britain is Shaped by Its Imperial Past. Hi, Satnam. Hello. You've written a couple of pieces for The Times over the past year about spending lockdown with your nieces, uh, this sort of like uh, intergenerational sitcom scenario. <laughs> are, are, are they still living with you? I'm amazed. I've actually got a book to promote, and it's people keep on asking me about my nieces. <laughs> um, it's gone to their heads. They're still alive. Do they have any books out? <laughs> not only that, have they not got books? I've not even given them my book because they've been <laughs> living rent-free, so they can bloody buy one. Fair enough. Well, we will talk about it uh, properly later, but as we start by the volume and range of the research, there's an extraordinary bibliography, and the book is partly about what we forgot to remember as a country. Did it start with a sort of personal desire to sort of find out more and fill in gaps in your own knowledge? Well, I, I knew very little about empire, and actually, I'm not someone who reads history books. I guess I write and I read novels, and I look for character and certain kind of plots and dialogue, and history books don't have that. But I went off to uh, India to make a documentary for Channel 4 about Jallianwalabagh, which is this notorious massacre that happened 100 years ago. And it was researching that that made me realize not only I knew nothing about imperialism, Actually, a lot of the way in which Sikhs were treated in India then echoed the way Sikhs were treated um, when my parents came to the UK. And that's when I began thinking that maybe I should fill the gaps in my knowledge. And can you give me an example of, of, a, of an episode or a kind of theme that you, you'd never heard of before, but that you, that you found fascinating? You know, that experience when you're doing research where you just can't believe what you're reading and you can't believe that it's new to you. Oh, there's all sorts of small things that are, exist because of empire. Wembley Stadium was initially known as the Empire Stadium, and the streets around it were named by Rudyard Kipling. And then some of the street names still exist. Um, the Scouts were actually going to be called the Imperial Scouts until the guy who founded them was talked out of it. The handbook for the Girl Guides, the first handbook was called How Girls Can Help to Build Up the Empire. Um, fingerprints were initially developed in India. The first police force was actually developed in Ireland and brought over into the UK. And actually, the most intriguing thing for me was 
the argument that the welfare state exists because of empire, because the, the argument goes, uh, the British were so disappointed by the quality of the people who volunteered to fight in the Boer War, they started developing things like free school meals and a welfare state. So you could argue it explains quite a lot. You were working on the book, obviously, before last summer's Black Lives Matter protests, unless you can read and write at an inhuman pace. <laughs> Um, and the toppling of the statue of Edward Colston, which sort of perfectly illustrated your points about how we process our imperial past, and you weave that incident into the book. Was that, I mean, every author enjoys sort of uh, their, their subject becoming relevant. Was that a godsend for you? It was, yeah, my book's accidentally timely. When I began it, it was quite esoteric. But then you got the Black Lives Matter thing that happened towards the end of my writing of it. And um, also at the same time, You've had this strange weaponization of empire by the by a certain right wing part of the Tory party who have realized that if you sow division around the culture war of the empire, it's really popular. You know, it works well with focus groups. And so you have the example of Robert Jenrick writing a column on how he's going to, you know, defend statues in the week that we have the highest death rate from coronavirus in the world. And it's become this weird culture war, which wasn't the case when I began writing the book. Well, um, presumably it's easier to defend people who are already dead uh, <laughs> to prevent people from dying now. Absolutely, yes. Let's begin. Um, in a rare bit of good news, the UK continues to administer vaccinations faster than any country in the world except Israel and the UAE. As of the 18th of January, the UK administered 6.65 vaccines per 100 people, well ahead of the next best um, in Europe, which is Denmark, with less than half. Matt Hancock said recently the UK had vaccinated more people in three days than France had in total. And last week, the UK was vaccinating more than 100 times more people than Italy. So when the government has failed so badly in other areas of COVID policy, last Wednesday, we saw a new daily record of 1,820 deaths. Why is it apparently excelling at vaccinations? And is this really, as the Brexiters like to claim, a Brexit dividend? Arthur, there's probably a lot of moving parts here, but but why is the UK doing so much better than the EU at this one thing? Um, well, as far as I can tell, that yeah, there are some different moving parts. So one bit of this is having got organised early on. So early last year, uh, you know, the vaccine task force was put together, and now there are con- controversies about that. the The head of it, she, she's married to a Tory minister. She famously spent huge amounts of money on sort of PR agents and, you know, didn't didn't seem sorry about that and, and, and sort of briefed various investor conferences. But having said that, the UK does have access to a huge number of vaccines compared to comparable countries and, and the different types of vaccine. Um, so so that, that means we're in, we're in a good situation. And I think one of the other things that's really important is actually using the existing uh, NHS infrastructure, uh, notably GPs, to roll out the administration of the vaccine. And what's really interesting there is if you look at all the problems with test and trace, part of that seems to have been not having relied on existing infrastructure and having paid Serco and various other huge private companies to set up entirely new teams of contact tracers. Whereas with the vaccine rollout, we're, we're relying on on a network which knows the population, knows its patients, and is therefore perhaps better able to reach out to them. So that, that might be some of, some, some of the issues in play. 
Well, because um, Remainers and people on the left hate saying anything nice um, about the government, there's been some controversy over how the government defines vaccination. Um, we've uh, Labour MPs, likes of the Sunday Mirror, arguing the first low dose alone doesn't count. Um, the first and second dose figures are kind of made clear on the government's website, so there's no sort of sleight of hand there. But would you define vaccination as both doses um, just the one? How do you feel about prioritizing this, this sort of the first dose of as many people as possible and then kind of pushing back the second one? Well, I think what I'm going to do is, is um, remind the listeners that I have a degree in history and I've got no qualifications whatsoever to define <laughs> vaccination and leave it there. Now, I've tried to read a little bit about this question of the delay between the first and second doses because the UK has decided to spread that time, which enables us to roll out more of the first doses, uh, but the delay is longer than that advised by the vaccine manufacturers. And as far as I can tell, it's a live debate between, you know, very expert scientists as to the risk reward on what is obviously a finely balanced decision. And, and I can't judge whether Claudia Webb is qualified to, to make this judgment, but I know that I'm definitely not. Maybe that is the problem. Is when you can't understand the science, you, you, you kind of you fall back into your sort of political biases. And maybe that's what, you know, what's happening over that argument. I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, in, inevitably, you know, th there are loads of reasons to be incredibly disappointed with what this government has done on COVID. And of course, it comes at the same time as we've been forced out of the EU, which at least half the people in Britain don't agree with. And it looks pretty obvious that that hasn't gone well either. So I can, I can see why there should be all those uh, reasons you know, to, to be upset. But I think there's a risk of falling into the same trap that uh, you know, Toby Young has fallen into, that he suddenly now thinks he can tell us why we don't need lockdowns. And he knows more about COVID than uh, epidemiologists. And those of us on the other side of the political divide probably should not, you mm. know, fall into that trap. Well, we will be coming to Dr. Toby, I assure you. Miata, <laughs> um, the UK paid, paid more than the EU for the Pfizer vaccine because it didn't have that kind of collective bargaining power. So that you could say that's one disadvantage. Do you think that sort of matters in a crisis like this? Or should you just sort of throw money at the problem? I think it matters less. Um, I think if, you know, they deliver on the vaccination programme in the way that they, they have started, not many people will care. It is a disadvantage that if you're a single country, you're not going to get, you know, the same terms as a big block. That was always, that has always been, if you like, uh, the Brexit dilemma. And it's playing out in this way. But, but, you know, I think they probably got a relatively fair price, not least because they just bought at the scale that they bought and certainly have probably got a better deal than some countries in Africa and elsewhere who I think are getting a pretty raw deal. So I don't think actually it matters if in the end they can do the thing that they say they can, which is, you know, vaccinate the entire adult population uh, before the end of the year. I mean, that would be pretty phenomenal and remarkable. Um, and I don't think, you know, if it costs us a little bit, people will mind that. And another positive thing about the UK, which is this is a very unusual week, is that pro-vaccine sentiment is over 80% um, compared to 59% in Germany, 46% in France. Why? I mean, we, we do obviously have anti-vaxxers here, um, but why do you think we have so so few in the general population? Yeah, so this is really interesting. Um, and the study that came out, I think, is hugely encouraging for us, less so for our friends and partners uh, in Europe. I mean, I think 
it's probably being driven by a number of things. Uh, the same study suggested that people in the UK, 75% of people view vaccines as safe in the round compared to about 60% 60, uh, 60 of people in Western Europe. So there's a sense already that vaccines are a good thing and they're safe, which I think helps. I think a big part of it is to do with the health, um, the NHS and the degree of trust that people attach to the NHS. The fact that it's being rolled out through the NHS, I think, uh, fills people with confidence. I think the fact that we have really effective vaccination and immunization programs, you know, any you know new parent will tell you, it's automatic that your kids, you know, not parents opt out, but generally it's automatic that your kids go through a series of uh, vaccinations. And most people don't bat an eyelid and we, you know, we, we view it with a, a fair degree of trust and confidence. So it's already baked in. And then I think the third thing is, you know, to be fair to the, the NHS and I guess uh, to the government to some extent, the comms around this has been pretty good. I mean, the comms around COVID has been a complete disaster in the round. But if you think about the fanfare we had around the first vaccine uh, that was given and, and it was a, a kind of a moment of celebration or the media fanfare. And what that, that's doing is playing back to the general public. Actually, there are people who are taking this, vulnerable people who are taking this. They're excited and happy. This is not something to be feared. Um, and the fact that every time there is either another vaccine from a different uh, you know, whether AstraZeneca or we hit another milestone, there's another moment where a big deal is made out of this. Because to be fair, it's a big deal. But I think all of that plays into a sense that this is a good thing. Uh, compound that with the trust that already exists there because of the NHS. And I think you're in a relatively good place. Certainly, and with the the sort of the, the sort of infection and death rate spiking so high, but also the vaccination rollout seemed to go well. It's been a bad month for lockdown skeptics and keen amateur epidemiologists like Julie Hartley Brewer and Toby Young, who confidently predicted last summer there would be no second wave. Um, and delightfully, we can remind him of this every day. You're a, you're a Fleet Street guy. Do you understand what they're playing at? Do you think this is a sincere? Um, belief, or did they, because many of them are Brexiters, think that they were going to be able to sort of find, you know, that there was far more popular support for their position than there in fact is? I think it goes back to a theme of my book, which is that in Britain, we have this sense of exceptionalism that we don't have to obey the rules. And you, you saw it in relation to the coronavirus with this obsession with being world beating. And Matt Hancock at one stage talking about how we had the best science in the world. And uh, it continues. And I think there's this idea that we can go it alone. And I think that inspired Brexit. And arguably, it's inspiring these people that they can just go off and have their own policy in relation to this global pandemic. And the Tory MP Neil O'Brien has been waging war on the sceptics slash deniers. Many of him, of course, are right for the Tory press. Do you think that it is very important to have people like this calling them out? It's easy to just go, well, sort of ignore them and they'll go away. But do you, do you need these kind of uh, pugilists on Twitter? Well, this is the greatest issue of our time, isn't it? It's not about left versus right. It's about truth and facts versus people who just make stuff up. And I don't think anyone has found a solution to that yet. I mean, it involves social networking, involves what we do about regulating Twitter and Facebook and so on. And I don't have the answer. And I've never read anyone and, I, and thought, oh, God, they've got the answer. No, I like I like Julie Hartley Brewer's claim as if it were an iron law that if people are calling your na you names, it means you're winning the argument. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that is not uh, universally applicable. Uh, she had a go at me inevitably once on Twitter and uh, said something about my family, if memory 
vaguely serves me. And then she came up to me at a party and started doing chit chat. And I thought, you can't slag me off about my family online and then expect me to be polite to your face. So I just walked off. But oh, um, maybe I should have stayed and talked to her or something. I that's know. the dream. I dream of being able to blank Julie Hallett-Brewer. <laughs> I'm sure we can rearrange that. Finally, with almost 2 million people being vaccinated per week here in the UK, we thought it would be a good idea to find out how the jabs actually work. So we asked an expert. Uh, my name's Deenan Pillay. I'm a professor of virology at University College London and a clinical virologist. I'm also a member of Independent SAGE. The vaccines that are now available for use work in different ways. All vaccines work in order to stimulate the host, the human immune response, to recognise if the body comes in contact with COVID-19. And so the aim is to prime the immune system in order that when and if that vaccinated individual comes across the virus becomes infected with the virus, then the immune system is primed to rapidly mount a response. The COVID vaccines, which of course have been developed in super fast speed, fall into two forms. One are called RNA vaccines, mRNA, M standing for messenger RNA, in which the gene that codes for a COVID protein, the gene is encoded within that RNA. And once in the body, then that messenger RNA, it's called messenger RNA because it provides the message for the cell to then produce the spike protein in large quantities, the COVID-19 spike protein, in sufficient quantities that the immune system then responds and antibodies are developed against that spike protein. The other vaccine that's available is the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, and that uses a different way to carry the gene for the spike protein into the body. It's not just the RNA itself, but that gene is incorporated into another completely separate virus. And when that virus, which cannot replicate and infect other human cells, but once it gets into a cell, then it can allow the gene coding for the spike protein that's been incorporated into that adenovirus to also produce spike protein. And then in exactly the same way, that spike protein can then lead to an immune response by the body, antibodies together with T cells. How do we know the vaccine is safe? We can look at the clinical trials that have been done. There's a rigorous way in which safety and side effects are monitored during these trials. And what these trials have shown is that, and, and those of your listeners who may have had the vaccine may very well have had a sore arm, a fever. These are common side effects from vaccines, but they are short-lived. These side effects really are no more than side effects for many other vaccines. And so your listeners must be reassured so far with many thousands of individuals in trials and now more than a million individuals within the UK being given these vaccines, there's very little evidence that in fact there's untoward side effects over and above those things that we get used to with vaccines, as I mentioned, soreness around the site of, in, uh, of injection. We can never say never. Many vaccines have, have 
you know, being associated with a very rare side effects. And of course, we've got to, in the same way that drugs that we take all the time may also be associated with, um, with, with very rare side effects. You know, I think the important thing is those, that information is available. Uh, there's a transparency for all of us to, to see, and, and, and the government will be pro- producing safety data from the experience so far in real life. The most important thing I would say, and I'm speaking as we have pretty much the peak of uh, infections in the UK, is that it is far, far better to have the vaccine, even if there's some mild side effects that last a day or two, compared to actually having COVID disease. Now we're going to talk to Satnam Sanghera about his excellent new book, Empire Land, How Modern Britain is Shaped by Its Imperial Past. At its height, the British Empire covered almost a quarter of the world by both landmass and population, but it came together in an ad hoc way over centuries. Satnam, do you think one reason that it is so poorly uh, taught, understood in schools, is that it's just so much bigger and more complicated story than like the World Wars or Henry VIII's wives? It's like this sort of vast mess. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, World War II is very simple. Six years, beginning, ending, we were the good guys. Whereas Empire, 500 years, sometimes we are good, sometimes we are bad. Incredibly complicated. Every book is at least a thousand pages long. But I think there's other reasons why we were so disconnected from the history. I mean, one of the reasons is that I think we've never been invaded. Whereas a country like France has had to face up to what it did during World War II. We've never really had to confront what happened in empire because there's always somewhere else but also i think another reason we've never really confronted it is that it's so painful i mean one of the things i found difficult about getting my head around all the history apart from the sheer length of all the books is <laughs> how painful it is you know it's like massacres genocides you know a few railways but actually really painful not a fun way to spend lockdown no, i should say to readers that satan's book is agreeably uh, pacey and is not anywhere near a thousand pages long. Oh, yeah, no, uh, brevity is a much underrated literary quality. <laughs> okay. um, so you, you quote at one point Orwell's essay, Shooting an Elephant, um, and the observation that imperialism corrupted the colonizers as well as obviously um, the way that it hurt the colonized, the same way that, you know, feminists would say misogyny hurts men as well as women. Um, so why are so many people so defensive? about the empire, the way that, you know, that, that, it, that this could have had any negative effects whatsoever in either direction. We've got this weird idea that's developed in, in the last 10 years or so that you need to be proud of your history. Like you need to be, if you're patriotic, you're proud of your history. That doesn't really exist as an idea in any other country I know of. I mean, you can talk about the Holocaust in Germany and still be proudly German. You can talk about kamikaze pilots in Japan and still be proudly Japanese. But here, if you talk about any negative aspect of British Empire, you're a woke loather of your own nation. And I think it's very dysfunctional. So my book is partly an attempt to address that. And you argue that the legacy of empire is with us, whether we know it or not. And you use some sort of personal examples. How do you, how is it sort of shaped or in ways that perhaps you didn't know before? Sort of Sikh identity, that experience of, of empire and how the imperialists sort of categorized Sikhs? Yeah, I guess the Sikhs in empire were a combination of being indulged and subjugated. They were indulged in that they were celebrated as a martial race. You know, the British put up memorials in Amritsar 
you know, celebrating our martial skills. Not that you'd be able to tell that looking at my physique. Um, <laughs> we fought on the side of the British for the mutiny. We fought for the British in both world wars. But at the same time, you know, we were murdered quite brutally in the Anglo-Sikh wars and murdered famously in Jallianwalabagh, the massacre that happened 100 years ago. And I found that actually that pretty much replicates what happened in post-war Britain without the murders. You know, there's a lot of racial violence towards Sikhs. There were racial generalizations. They were discriminated against in employment in that Sikhs weren't allowed to, say, work on the railways like the British were. They weren't allowed to live near the British, next door to the British. They weren't allowed to have, you know, interracial relationships. And that's pretty much what happened to Sikhs when they arrived in the 1960s and 1970s. And you, you mentioned um, that absurd sort of uh, Lawrence Fox complaint about having a Sikh soldier in the film 1917. But of course, that, that's entirely true. Like you said, there, there, there were Sikh soldiers. This isn't sort of rewriting history in a kind of, uh, you know, politically correct manner. It's just, it's just reflecting what was, what was actually there. Yeah, that's one of the things I find most painful, actually. Because when I look back, at the, I've probably sat through 40 or 50 Remembrance Day services in my life. And never has anyone said, actually, your people were there in their millions, dying for a nation that colonized you. It would have been quite a good point to make to a racially diverse school you know, crowd in Wolverhampton, but no one ever made that point. And it turns out this is a constant thing in that after World War I, the imperial contribution to the war was you know, officially deleted. And it, it continues to be the case that someone like Lawrence Fox can get away with saying something that outrageous. And actually, that lie has made him very famous. And one chapter is called We Are Here Because You Were There. And that seems to be the sort of simple truth that if it were more wide, if it had been more widely understood, would have made a huge difference to... Oh, God, yeah, yeah. All, you know, all kinds of people in this country and, and, and attitudes towards towards immigration. So... It seems that, I mean, you, you do say that the, that the whole relationship between empire and racism is kind of complicated, and that almost the em- empire kind of bred racism rather than being the product of racism. You know, um, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good chapter. Um, but, I mean, is this, is, this, is this a sort of, I suppose, the prime example of what happens if you just don't talk about history properly, is that you allow this sort of this anti-immigration sentiment, this sort of you don't belong here, the thing to come out because you've just erased the whole reason why so many people have come here. Absolutely. And one of the things I was really shocked by was that, you know, the people who came over on the Windrush, they didn't have jobs to come to. They came as citizens. They were the 1948 Nationality Act made citizens of empire, citizens of Britain, and they were coming home to their mother country. And we've got to a situation now where they're being deported because they're not seen as British citizens anymore. And that's the level of the delusion. And it goes back centuries. I mean, Elizabeth I was complaining about there being too many black people in London, you know, in the 1600s. And we've just been in denial about the fact that we are a multicultural society because we had a multicultural empire for centuries now. Just on that point, I mean, one of the questions in my head is, in a world where, you know, the, the, the reality of the empire and the links to race and immigration has become so divisive and so toxic, you're either in defense of our history and our country or uh, you're trying to sort of undermine the whole thing. How do you break through that? Um, how do you have, you know, a proper assessment of the truth and the reality um, in the way that there's good and there's bad that kind of enriches our understanding of 
the now uh, and move past this very, very divisive space we're in, whether you're either in defense of everything the empire had to hold um, or you are kind of trashing our history. Yeah, it's a good question that. I think we've got to break away from this balance sheet idea that you can weigh massacres against railways and come to some kind of conclusion, you know? And I think there's hope to be found in what other countries are doing. I mean, Macron has made some very positive noises about what they should do with their museums in France. You've got the New Zealand, and they've done amazing things with their, with their education and their curriculum. And even in America, they talk about reparations for slavery in, the way, in a way that we don't. We look at America and we think, God, they're screwed up about race. But we're much more screwed up. We're nowhere near having that conversation, you know. And, of course, the ultimate example is Germany, which has, done, has made active work of facing up to its history, part of almost daily life. It has an art scene that confront, confronts the Holocaust. It has memorials. It has stumble stones outside houses where Jewish families were abducted and sent to their death. It's a constant thing. Whereas in this, this country, we're not even ready to talk about it, let alone talk about reparations. Well, there's this weird idea that conservatives talk about removing statues. I think it was in that terrible Robert Jenrick piece as erasing history. Um, but a lot of this history has has already been erased by previous generations. And so th- there's already this form of amnesia. But so the, 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 the sort of generic position is that there is this, that the history as we know it right now, and all the statues and names and, and histories that we have right now is the sort of objective. These are just things that happened. And that any attempt to kind of go, oh, but we f- maybe we forgot this, or maybe the, there's this other kind of history, that, that, that sort of, you know, that sort of woke culture wars. It's almost like sort of history is fixed. Yeah, it's bizarre. And also it, it kind of glosses over the fact that a lot of these statues were controversial at the time. The, the statue of Robert Clive was hugely controversial. And the Viceroy of India said, you know what, it's needlessly provocative. And yet now that is deemed to be a woke thing to say. I mean, if that's woke, you know, throughout empire, members of the establishment were criticizing empire. You know, Gladstone had railed against jingoism. Queen Victoria complained when, you know, Lord Kitchener came back with a skull and, and kind of wanted to keep it on his desk as a memento. H.G. Wells, George Orwell, Ian Foster railed against it. Even Churchill called the Jallianwalabagh massacre monstrous. So it, was he woke? And woke is just this word that's used to, um, you know, make people who have the counter-argument look sound ridiculous. And what do you make of the the argument that's been um, quite popular over the last few years that Brexit is primarily a legacy of the imperialist mentality, that because I suppose we can blame the empire for British exceptionalism, we can blame it for Brexit. And there's certain figures in the continuity of Enoch Powell as being sort of pro-empire and the kind of, you know, the original Eurosceptic. Do you, do, do you sort of buy that as an explanation? I'm afraid I do. I didn't want to buy it because I'm so bored of Brexit. But when you just look at the number of times Brexiteers have talked about global Britain, when you think about, you know, Liam Fox talking about our proud trading history, um, Pretty Pretty Patel saying the same. And also, you've got to remember that the the leaders of Brexit, I mean, people like Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg, they are massively imperially nostalgic. I mean, Johnson has written his books about Churchill. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg wrote a terrible book about the Victorians being incredibly nostalgic about empire. So these two figures just happen to be imperial nostalgic. And I think you can definitely link empire to Brexit. 
And you, you sort of argue for this, as, as Miata was bringing up, this sort of idea of a more sort of balanced remembrance and a kind of form of a, a sort of way of looking at the history, which isn't just kind of like, um, like you said, the, the balance sheet. One of the words that's become a real buzzword around museums, the arts, uh, curriculum is decolonization, um, which you see in all kinds of contexts. You decolonize a university, but you can also decolonize your mind. I mean, do, do you, you, you mentioned it briefly. Do you find it a useful concept? I find, I think it's, it was a process that I underwent, but I didn't realize I was undergoing it until quite late into the process. And it was actually reading Edward Said's Orientalism that made me realize I had been colonized. But I think it's one of those words that isn't particularly helpful because it really provokes people. It makes people feel like they're being deleted. When actually what you're doing is you're expanding your mind. You're not deleting stuff. You're expanding the curriculum. You know, you're putting the canon into a global context. I think it's much more helpful to talk in those terms. As soon as you start talking about, you know, tearing things down and decolonizing, I think you're immediately in the heart of a culture war. Yeah, that's the whole that's sort of argument about how you frame the kind of diversification of a canon, isn't it? it it's sort of, it, you know, you'd be going, well, why not just let, why not also bring in these other writers? And then the reactionary thing is like, well, you're getting rid of these yeah. people. As soon as it feels like you're getting rid of a famous writer, then the kind of, the defences go up. Totally. It was, a, it was a failure of my education that I was not told about say, slavery, that I didn't read any Indian writers until my final term of university. That, that's an academic failure, you know? I didn't, my teaching didn't tell me about the full context of these books. So I think if you talk about things like that, it's much more helpful. Unfortunately, there's all these terms like woke and decolonization that are thrown around and people just use them to insult each other. Well, we are about to talk about woke in, in more detail in the next segment. But mm. finally, do you think that a lot of this sort of backlash against, um, a lot of the time, really quite kind of, you know, sort of polite, thoughtful recommendations of how to kind of get a more balanced and sort of deeper understanding of this history, do you think a lot of that is, is generational and that 20 years from now, it could be quite uncontroversial to talk about, you know, the crimes of empire um, and just talk about the empire in, in the round, that this is just something that, that, that Britain will grow out of. You know what? I think that is actually a very positive thing to say. I do think young people feel really strongly about imperialism and they're much more educated because they get their news from different sources. And I think the way young people feel about, say, museums is the way that our generation felt about zoos. They can't quite believe they exist. And they go to these places with a sense of disgust. And I think... Similarly with Black Lives Matter, there's a generational change and there's hope. Last week, Lisa Nandy praised Joe Biden as a woke guy. Boris Johnson was asked if he agreed and then if he considered himself woke and he couldn't really answer either question. If the head of a government that is allegedly waging a war on woke can't decide if he's fully against it or not, is it a useless word and how did it become so ubiquitous so fast? Miata, how would you answer that simple question? Um, are you woke? 
So interestingly, uh, th- I got asked this on talk radio, um, and so I looked up <laughs> what work what work was, and you know, it, the, the term comes from the kind of racial justice movement, and it means to care about social justice, to care about racial justice. And so the thing I said to them is, who wouldn't be woke? We should all be woke. We should be shouting about our wokeness. Uh, so uh, absolutely, uh, I, I am a woke, and the fact that it's being used as a derogative term, I think, is an absolute nonsense. Well, yeah, because it's sort of the new version of political correctness, but political correctness originate. it was always a criticism, even when it was just sort of an intra-left criticism. It was never meant to be a positive thing. But what did begin as a positive thing started on Twitter in 2012 uh, with Erica Badu, who sang I Stay Woke on her song Master Teacher, um, Woke Fact Fans, and then caught on, like you said, during the rise of Black Lives Matter. I mean, is that why it's such a weird word, is that someone's a is, is that there's the people try and turn something that is positive into an insult. So therefore it constantly has this double meaning depending on who's saying it. Yeah, absolutely. But, and that's in part why I don't think it works. Um, and why actually I think, you know, those on the progressive liberal side, rather than kind of shying away from it or trying to dodge it should just be, it means you care about social justice. It means you care about racial justice what kind of a numpty wouldn't care about those two things? You would shut down the debate. Um, because I, I think it's a terrible thing when we try and slur things that are should be the core of what we're trying to do as a society, in a civilised society. And I think it sidesteps the debate because I think it's become a way in which you're trying to shut down, you know, those on the, I would call the hard right, use it to try and shut down liberal progressive debates uh, that they probably know resonates uh, with people when you get underneath the skin of the the, the sort of top lines. Uh, and that's why I just don't think it's worth engaging. Do you ever hear, I mean, because it's sometimes levelled against a certain kind of performative dogma, there's a certain kind of um, it's a rigid group thing. Are there any contexts in which you've come across it where you thought it was effective as a criticism and almost, you know, that it had this sort of third meaning that it was it was about quite a, a specific kind of behaviour? Yeah, I mean, so if you're being generous uh, to those <laughs> that like to use uh, woke uh, freely, they would say that there is a particular kind of you know, progressive, lefty, liberal view that's very intolerant of other views. Um, And if you don't subscribe to, you know, this way of thinking, then you should be silent. And and there is a little bit of that, and there can be a little bit of that in the debate. But I think the problem is that it's just used too freely. Um, If you vaguely have a progressive sentiment, you're suddenly awoke which is why I don't think it's effective. The one thing I would say is for those of us on the kind of progressive liberal side, the unwillingness sometimes to engage with the other side, I think is is wrong and dangerous, um, partly because I don't agree with, you know, a lot of the things I hear on talk radio, uh, but I engage thoughtfully because it does represent a view. It represents a view that's out there. And you have to understand the view in order to think about how you might be able to change people's minds. And if you just shut it down, you miss the opportunity to do that. Um, Arthur, I'm going to just assume that every time I say the word woke, I've got a little, I'm doing little scare quotes here. I think a lot of people on the kind of broad liberal left will be will be woke on some issues, but not necessarily uh, all of them. So if we if we must talk about it, does it make more sense to think about it of as a spectrum than than a binary? Like the the idea that you could you're either woke or not woke, and there's no kind of there's nothing in the middle. I think there's there's a bigger issue here, which isn't it that the conservatives in this country particularly are desperate to have a culture war because they 
seem to have found that that's electorally effective. And therefore, the idea that everybody who is not conservative adheres to a certain uh, you know, group of opinions, which you can then sort of typecast. And of course, some of those opinions have become very mainstream, you know, attitudes to homosexuality, which 20 years ago might have been seen as ultra-liberal, you know, now now completely mainstream. Other things might not be. So I, I genuinely think that this point about, you know, obviously every everybody's on a spectrum. Everybody has different views on everything. You know, you, you somebody you know is very liberal, but then you find one thing where, where you know, their view doesn't necessarily sort of adhere to the, to, to what you expect. And, and so I, I honestly think this whole debate is because of a political movement that is driven by culture war or the attempt to, to start one. Well, because I think the flaw with that, with that um, argument, not argument, what they're tr- that strategy that they're trying to pull off here is that they talk about wokeism like it's a movement. It's very weird, the word from a, um, an Erica Badu song is now an ism. But they try and present it as if it's the movement and it's the opposition. Whereas if you take trans rights as an issue, there are Tory MPs, particularly sort of in the newer intakes, who are more progressive on that issue than some Labour MPs. So it's not actually that there's so many different issues and it's not actually a kind of straight right left thing. It's not a kind of. Uh, so do you, do you think it is actually even effective? When you say effective electorally, do you? I mean, do you think it is, or does it actually just sort of cut across the parties? Well, I think it can be because it's rather like this issue of, you know, if you want to find—not that most people do—but if you want to find people with uh, very racist opinions, you would start by going to parts of the country where there are no people who aren't white. So the point is that the most racist people are people who are not in any way affected by immigration or multiculturalism or you know changes that have happened in our society and isn't that the point here that you what conservatives are trying to do is construct a, a kind of fantasy monster of liberals who who are undermining the the way of life that you you feel that you expect and all kinds of cultural values and traditions and things that you you think would carry on and christmas and the normal family and all these things and and it's not that anyone has ever met somebody who conforms to this terrifying sort of liberal extreme, because the people that you're delivering this message to are still living in culturally quite conservative communities. But I think it's this, it's a shibboleth, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. And Satnam, what I found really interesting is that, it, is that in America, culture wars, which is where the phrase comes from, um, involves really fundamentally divisive things like abortion rights or gun rights and that over here it seems that i mean statues seem to take up a huge amount of space actually the tories haven't gone very strong on for example trying to start a huge fight about um trans rights although i mean there there is a huge fight about trans rights but it's not something that the kind of is coming from the government and statue seems to be the only sort of thing that they think is a safe argument against woke because they don't want to be um you know, they don't want to get too into that murky thing of banging on about critical race theory and, and like, uh, you know, sounding like Breitbart. <laughs> do you think that it's, well, we talk so much about culture wars because largely because of Brexit, but but do you think that Britain is, is, so, is different enough from America that there really aren't these, there aren't enough substantial wedge issues to make, make it work? 
we're definitely less polarized and a bit more confused. I mean, so you've had this whole statue thing, which the government seemed to have decided is good for them. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know if you remember, a couple of months ago, Boris Johnson made a video for Black History Week or month saying, oh, you know, Black history is British history. It's like, what? Everything you've done for the past year has been saying the opposite. And I think it's kind of this double speak, which they'll say the opposite to cater for a certain community, you know, to buy them kind of sympathy. But I mean, woke, I, I, I tweeted about wokeness this week and I got some responses from the right, from right wingers. And I think they had a point. They said, isn't this what you guys do with the right wing? I mean, you use the phrase alt-right or fascist or, you know, mainstream media very easily as a way of making us look ridiculous. And that did make me think. I mean, I, I suspect we've got our equivalents of woke. Yeah, I suppose, it's, I mean, you're always trying to be sort of careful, aren't you, about the words you use? Although not so careful that you don't call fa- actual fascists fascists. <laughs> yes, and you could say we've been proved right with uh, Donald Trump. I remember being shut down for saying uh, Trump was a fascist on, a, on the BBC a few, four years ago. And now I think he is. He's been shown to be. But maybe we are sometimes too keen to use certain phrases. Do you think it does? Do you think Lisa Nandy's, I mean, she's obviously started a whole shitstorm with that and um, given us a segment. So thank you, Lisa Nandy. <laughs> um, do, do, you think it, do you think it does apply to Biden or, or when thinking about, you know, like a sort of, uh, you know, a sort of liberal guy, but also somebody very much from another generation, does, does, it, does it sort of expose kind of actually how complicated the word is? You know what? Sometimes I would say the word woke does work as an insult. I mean, when it was applied to some of the more excessive things that Harry and Meghan have done, I did think maybe they've got a point. So maybe it's just an entirely subjective thing, you know, it's like just feels right sometimes. Do you think that, um, finally, do you think that's how the, the Republicans are going to try and attack Biden, even though the, um, his executive order on LGBTQ rights was actually supported by a 6-3 Supreme Court decision, so it's fully constitutional and most of the public seems to be behind it. You know, there seems to be lots of commentators going, well, that's it, he's, he's, gone, he's gone crazy and he's going to lose the simple working man. Do you think yeah, that's no, that going to be the story? Jerry Baker wrote a column for The Times saying as much, saying, look, He's not trying to compromise. He's not find, trying to find some kind of, you know, common ground between Republicans and Democrats because he's launched immediately into identity politics. And you could say identity politics is the thing that got us going on this whole journey, you know, five or six years ago. But I suppose I do think sometimes if you've got, you know, if you've got this Supreme Court behind you, that not all identity politics is a culture war. Sometimes it's just, it's, it's the Constitution. <laughs> A culture war, there's a whole program to, make, to be made about the phrase culture war, because almost every culture warrior seems to think the, their opposition is a culture warrior without realising they <laughs> themselves are one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, all, it's always the other guy's fault. Always the other guy. Well, we've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes and politics, the books, films, TV shows or music that's providing them with sweet respite. Uh, Miata, what's uh, what's your favourite distraction at the moment? So, uh, unfortunately, I'm reading Beyond the Red Wall, so it's, it's not in the books, but I have started cooking more um, as a bit of a respite from both politics and lockdown. Uh, so that's keeping me sane. 
Lovely. Arthur? Well, I, I go through these cycles of, of forgetting to listen to music because, you know, there's so much news and sort of stress and so many great podcasts. But I think something to do with Biden's inauguration meant that I could sort of subtract a bit of headspace and listen to more music. And I'm, I'm a massive classical music bof- boffin, so I've been really enjoying uh, listening to some wonderful um, sort of albums of, of kind of Renaissance choral music. And it's, you know, it's, it's transcendental and calming and wonderful. Um, Satnam, now that you don't have to read any more 1,000-page books about empire. Um, They're still you... being sent to me. <laughs> I'll bet. For the rest of your life. Thanks, exactly. Oh, well, the um, thing is, I've now watched and read everything in the world. So I've started watching things I don't even like. So I'm watching this series called Rome, which was made by HBO a few years ago. And it's mad. It's like a precursor to Game of Thrones and and involves incest and insane plot lines. But it's also strangely enjoyable at times. So um, I'm not sure if that's entirely a recommendation. I remember that. That was from that. That was real. That was the heyday of gratuitous HBO nudity, Rome. Oh my! Yeah, there's so much sex. Is Game? Of, I've never watched Game of Thrones. I imagine it's the same thing. It is, but then it sort of grew out of it. There, I think it, the, the the heyday of uh, gratuitous nudity passed during the making of Game of Thrones. At least with Rome, I feel like I'm learning something about Rome, <laughs> even though it's probably factually incorrect. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, mine is uh, Ted Lasso on Apple Plus. Well, they've only they only seem to have made about three TV shows. Apple Plus, um, and I thought uh, I saw the trailer and I thought that this just looked nonsense. But because there's only three shows, I thought, well, I might as well try it. And it turns out to be the most incredibly sort of benign, warm program to watch. It's very, it is very sharp and funny, but it's just, it's about an American coach who manages a kind of struggling English football team. And it's just so, it manages to be sincere uh, in a way that is quite rare, uh, while also being kind of funny and having, and not becoming just sort of sentimental and uh, annoying. So, yeah, that's the closest I've found to just sort of instant feel-good vibes. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to our special guest, Satnam Sangera. Thank you. To Miata Fambula. Thank you. And to Arthur Snell. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers get an honorary salute on the show, and here is some now. Hello, and a big thanks from me to Lindsay Ray, Leslie Hitchens, and Phil Walker. And thanks from me to Callum Black, Phil Nicol, and Eileen Kemp. And finally, thanks from me to Leslie Trussler, Chris Jobling and Emily Chapman. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Miata Farnbella and Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.